All right. Welcome to another great episode of the greatest, greatest podcast, podcast in, in history. history. Uh, I am Mitch. And I'm Dylan. Yep. Uh, Mitch paused almost there because he's going to say he was Dylan. I was, just like you said that you were Mitch. <laughs> I'm only yeah, saying that because I did it once and I got yeah. super embarrassed by it. So he probably wasn't actually going to say that. It was a dramatic pause, actually. It was very dramatic. I was dramatic. trying to lure the listener in. Mitch. Yes. I am Batman. Not really. He's not. All right. Uh, We got a very special episode for you today. Yeah. Uh, One that's very interesting, uh, we we hope, at least. Everything we do is interesting, Mitch. Exactly. Don't undersell us. You're right. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about um, historical agency, (laughs) for lack of a better uh, term. Specifically, uh, how historians approach African Americans, largely when dealing, uh, talking about the Civil War era, uh, antebellum, Civil War, and then Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also, maybe our nerdiest moment of all time, um, the book I'm looking at right now okay. is Mitch Lore owns the book that it's signed by the author. Yes. I've never seen anybody get a history book signed by the author of the book before. Uh, uh, this is an all new low for us here. And I apologize to everybody listening. Well, I thought it was cool, so thank you for that. Um, he said he thought it was cool, and then he told me the author was kind of full of himself, So, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I haven't said who true. the author was, Mitch. Don't, you're not going to get in trouble. Yeah, so I can't say where a lot, a lot of this is coming from. Steve Hahn, who listened, definitely listens to this podcast right. and knows about it. Yeah. Um, he, he wrote a book in 2003 called A Nation Under Our Feet, Black Political Struggles in the Rural South from Slavery to the Great Migration. Uh, it won the 2004 Pulitzer Prize in History. So, I mean, you know it's, it's good and it was exactly. and it's extremely well uh, researched. I only know one other Pulitzer Prize in History book and it was also about the Civil War. Really? It seems like there's a connection. Probably. Uh, and that's, to be honest, real quick, that's one of the things that attracts me to the, that period that, the most, because there's so much to write about, even though millions of books have been written about it. Uh, nothing you produce is going to be the exact same as what other historians have made. And I mean, for lack of a better for term, there's, there's so much drama to it, and there's so many different layers to it uh, to peel back and analyze and, and discuss. Uh, exactly. I mean, it was a hugely important event in the development of the United States and United States history. Our yeah. country broke into two, uh, yeah. which, you know, happened all the time in Europe. But, yeah. And so it's, like, not, a, like, a big deal yeah. over there. Like, countries, you know, split, reformed, empires grew. Um, so it's not, like, I mean, it's obviously a huge part of European history, but it's not, like, at the fundamental, like, there wasn't, like, a fundamental change the way we write about it when we write about American history. Yeah. And there was this, you know, like, switch uh, from one way of living to another with the Civil War because mm-hmm. it happened so many times in Europe. But in America, because it's that once, it gets that huge, huge place in yeah. our history. I mean, it could be said that that's kind of a, a testament to um, the, the the Constitution and this, uh, the system of government that we have, that even the Civil War didn't uh, succeed in tearing us apart. Yeah. Uh, almost. Almost. But that's, yeah, that's something that we can talk about uh, another time. Um, but basically... There's what you see a lot in in history. It's it's common trap when you're kind of writing about it or studying uh, studying it. Is that it's it's easy to kind of fall into this trap where you you're so focused on learning a subject of history from one perspective that when you start talking about other people who are interacting with perhaps the subject or the type of people that you're talking about, 
it seems like this is the first time that they're coming onto the historical scene. Exactly. Like, like they're a walk-on character on like a sitcom or something. Exactly. Um, I think you, you can see this probably one of the more recent examples would be um, women in history. Uh, a lot of people, you know, you don't start talking about big historical fa- uh, women until you start seeing the suffrage movement, mm-hmm. uh, which happened in the late 1800s and really kind of came to full force in the early 1900s. But, you know, since, ever since mankind's been around, there's been women. Exactly. I mean, and now, like, if you open up a high school textbook, generally what you see is you'll see a little sidebar with, you know, Caddy Stanton or someone like that, and then, you know, that's it, and the rest of the chapter is all men. Yeah. But, you know, but you also see this with um, sometimes African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case that we're kind of talking about here, uh, it can be kind of easy to start saying, well, African Americans didn't really begin acting as uh, organized political agents until the Civil Rights Movement, when they had the March on Washington. Yeah. And that's insane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. even if you're just talking about, like, the United States, just specifically African Americans, like, that's such, like, a dumb thing to say. Yeah. But it'd be, it, that's how it is, and, like, that's how it comes out in a lot of history. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, once you get, like, especially before, like, say, the 80s or the 90s. Yeah. Um, so what you see, I mean, what Stephen Hahn really tries to do is kind of turn this on, on, it, on its head. He, I mean, the title of this book, A Nation Under Our Feet, is, is not talking about the nation of the United States, but the nation of African Americans participating in, in political movements and social movements and, and kind of having a, their own cultural institutions even before emancipation came about. Um, really, the focus of his book is showing how all these things, um, like W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, Frederick Douglass and these, these big uh, notable names that you often see uh, in his, history textbooks, all their political thought and all their, uh, their speeches and, and the, the seeds of those came from just African-American culture that was already, you know, a, it was a thriving culture even under the yoke of slavery. Exactly, and that's just like one of the biggest things when you're doing history. Like, if you're tempted when you're tempted to write about like these big individuals who like seemingly like wrote their names on like the face of history, which I think that's a quote from something I couldn't tell you what. Um, but <laughs> um, it's like it's never just that individual like sprouting new ideas, you know, from nothing. There's always a history behind them. There's always a lineage of intellectual thought that they're taking from. Mm-hmm. There's and I bastardize another quote. There's nothing new under the sun. Like no one is just a formless individual that is born into a world and develops in completely new ideas. Everyone takes from everything else, and so writing history as if this person as like a is about a decontextualized person that they had no intellectual lineage behind them. That's just bad history. Mm-hmm. And so what Steve Hahn's book is doing is adding that intellectual history uh, and the, just the general history, not even just intellectual history, to a lot of these characters. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he kind of, he begins by talking about, um, you know, b- before slavery, but where a lot of his, his arguments will, will stem from, um, you can see the, the roots of them in what African Americans were up to in slavery. And one of the, the biggest examples um, is, is African Americans' cultural institutions that they had 
even as they were slaves. Um, I, I remember one example he talks about after, during the Civil War when a lot of African Americans were fleeing to Union lines or were um, you know, being, uh, came under the Union territory, they were then subsequently uh, considered contraband or you know, freed or whatever you want to say, argue about it. Um, I remember he was, Han argues that a lot of the uh, ministers and priests and missionaries that would then go to the African Americans to preach them the Bible and teach it to them found an African American society that was already extremely well versed in the Bible, that could recite multiple passages from it, and even were, in that sense, literate when, with regards to the Bible. Exactly. I mean, and that's just one example that goes to show yeah. that, you know, white people in that day and continuing up to this day, they don't, you know, you don't often see, like, African Americans as having their own cultural, like, institutions. Like, I guess, and this is more during that day, like, they were still seen as slaves. Even if you were anti-slavery, generally you saw um, African Americans as being less than whites. There was still that, like, racial science kind of idea, not even racial science, just straight-up racism, that white people were better. So even if you didn't believe in racism, you still didn't see African Americans as being capable of, uh, like, having the same, like, institutions as white people, or having the mm -hmm. same, like, development level, like, culturally. Yeah. You know? Uh, and where a lot of that that knowledge came from was um, from African Americans uh, meeting in their own groups uh, on Sundays. Oftentimes they'd have a Sunday off uh, from work because it was, I guess, the least they could do, the masters yeah, could do when they're working 23 hours a day uh, to give them one day off. Um, and sometimes they'd still be doing work and yeah. whatnot. But... They were oftentimes able to gather in groups to teach each other the Bible or to talk about uh, God and religion and, and sing their own sermons and, and everything like that. And sometimes they would even do it in secret, under the cover of darkness in the middle of night, because sometimes uh, masters would prohibit slaves from gathering in large groups or even small groups. Um, especially, and, and this is kind of, I think, one of the greatest ironies in how Southerners and slave owners viewed slavery because you always hear the argument that they were incapable of viewing slaves as uh, anything but animals or whatnot, and so you you can't you know mean you can't hate them that much because yeah. that was how they were raised, but you don't sign laws prohibiting a cow from reading yeah. or prohibiting exactly. a cow from assembling large numbers. So there was a, a knowledge that these were human beings and acceptance yeah, that they uh, were, yeah. I mean, which makes been, it horrible. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's ridiculous to argue that because, I mean, these slave owners were working with, the, they were interacting with the slaves every day. And you can't, like, no matter how much, like, you deluded yourself, like, there is, you, it's impossible to delude yourself completely. And, I mean, they, so they knew what they had to do to, you know, maintain control over the slave population. They knew that they weren't just like, quote-unquote, like, rabid animals, whatever, like, historians are arguing, they knew that they were actual people, and so then they did the same things they would have done to control other people. Absolutely. Um, and what kind of Han talks about in his book is that a lot of these, and these small group meetings, whether in secret or on a, a Sunday afternoon, were the, the, the cornerstones of what would grow up to be African-American churches after the, after the, after mm -hmm. the Civil War. And these churches would become 
extremely important symbols of 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 African American community. Exactly. That's why when you go to the civil rights movement in the '60s, the bombing of black churches was such had such a huge effect because they were pillars of the uh, of the. Sorry, Mitch was apparently listening to oh, the Hobbit soundtrack before he got oh, here, and he just pulled it up on his computer. Um, but anyway, that's why <laughs> the bombing of black churches was so like it was. It created such a fear. Uh, in the community when this was happening because they were such important pillars of the community at the time, and that has connections uh, back to, I mean, even pre-slavery. Um, it goes all going all the way back to Africa. Mm-hmm. Like, these, like, religious institutions were uh, such a huge part of the community. Yeah. That's for for people who may not have much to, else to hold on to. Religion is is their identity. Exactly. Which is interesting when you see now, when you see writers like Tennessee Coates, um, explicitly moving away from that part of moving away from that argument that, um, that black people should rely on religion uh, to uh, keep themselves going in face of struggle. He's he's very much anti-religious, not anti-religious. He's very much like agnostic or atheistic, and so it's a new strain you see within the African American community is embracing of a non-religious aspect of their lives. But that's not really what we're talking about. Right no, now. that's 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 interesting. <laughs> it's you know it's it's. Arguments that I'm sure they they would have too. You know, how where do we put our faith in? Where do we put our hope in? Um, and and where do you how do you channel that into productive and and advancement to help protect yourself? Um, you know, and and speaking of of protection, it's it was one of the the biggest things also that Han talks about is um, is protect is how could African Americans protect their rights. Uh, that they were gaining from the Civil War with the 14th Amendment and the emancipation of slavery and all these things, um, what would, would it be the government's job to protect those rights? Or, as a lot of whites saw back then, they would, they would argue, you have the rights now. It's in the Constitution. You, know, you have the same liberties that we have on paper. You're good to go. Exactly. I mean, and, you know, African Americans were idiots. They saw that just because something was in the Constitution... Or just because something was law doesn't mean that it was followed. There's like, <laughs> that's not how the world works. You know, just because something is written down doesn't mean that those laws can be broken or those laws can be systematically destroyed by the government that's supposed to uphold them. And so, I mean, they were very aware uh, that they had to, that there was, had to be something done about all of this. Yeah. And this, and this was such a, honestly, a very groundbreaking issue for, for a lot of Americans in general. Uh, as Stephen Hahn says, um, as, as the advocates of Republican Reconstruction pushed for enfranchisement and full civil standing for African Americans, quote, they set out to do something that no other society in the world, let alone state in the South or the Union, has so much as atten- attempted, end quote. And this, I mean, this was full um, suffrage and enfranchisement for all men. Um, Supposedly. Yes, it, that's at least what it was supposed to be. Yeah. And this was um, radical and revolutionary for the time. Um, you know, this is, this is in, insane. And so the reaction to it, it, it's, you know, it's hard to see how people would not take, honestly, violent reaction to such novel policies. Um, yeah, as we, I mean, as we've seen throughout American history, uh, America's not really great with change. And we often react with, to change with violence. Um, and 
radical reconstruction was no different than anything else. Yeah. Than the American Revolution, than, you know, new taxes and we tarred and feather British agents when we, you know, during World War II, when we interned uh, Asian Americans. they were, these are all part of the same part of American culture. Yeah. Reacting with the violence to change. Yeah. And, yeah, when you you feel that you've been backed into a corner or that you're, you're in an unfamiliar environment, you're going to lash out. And yes. that's, that's when you get extremely dangerous circumstances. Um, and what this did was it ushered in a, a reign of terror in the South. Um, we, we, we talk about this in our uh, the Rise of the Ku Klux Klan episode. Um, but, I mean... The, as Stephen Hahn also says, quote, the exercise of political power nonetheless demanded ready and effective access to the means of violence. Um, whether that what meant that you were a, a member of a, a clan or a, another white supremacy group, uh, for you that meant that you needed violence to intimidate Republicans, white or black, or just African Americans away from the polls so they couldn't uh, they couldn't flex their their right to to vote and and see themselves in the civil realm, or whether that meant you as an, a newly freed and enfranchised African American man trying to protect your rights that were just given to you, as well as protect your family, your life, and in lots of ways uh, your your masculinity too. Mm-hmm. All these different things are big factors into this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, and then I guess we should talk a little bit about some of the ways that uh, we talk about a little bit about the ex- explicit like agencies that um, these African Americans took did during Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, Go ahead. No, I'm I'm just gonna say like this was a time we kind of touched on this in the Klan episode a lot too. This was a time when being part of an organization or society meant. Uh, where you were in in society at at Mm -hmm. large. It gave you status, it gave you identity, and for a lot of African Americans, this began at at church, uh, where you had your, you were part of a a small niche in the community, you had your your church, fellow churchgoers and whatnot, and you were even unique from other people who went to a different, African Americans who went to a different church, that gave you a sense of group and a sense of agency. but as a lot of African Americans were met with violence from different clans and whatnot, they organized their own militias and, and paramilitary groups and often uh, called union leagues, which were uh, oftentimes white and black uh, members. And they would arm themselves and they would drill and they would practice military tactics in preparation uh, for marching to the polls or um, you know, defending themselves and their homes and their farms. Um, and that was another way that African-American men uh, found them their, their place in the greater society. And it's important to keep this in mind because a lot of times what you get when you're talking about the Reconstruction period in the United States, uh, especially uh, outside of college but also in college as well, is that radical Reconstruction was almost 100% a federal uh, work. That it was you know, President Grant... Uh, President Johnson sending down federal troops, and that's what made Reconstruction. It was all just Congress passing laws. There wasn't anything on the ground, and that's not the case. There was a positive action and positive agency from mem- specific individual members of the community on very like non-federal levels who were trying to make Reconstruction work. Reconstruction wasn't just a federal program to you know try to bring uh, equal rights to the South. It was 
brought up and made to work for a fair number of years mm -hmm. by individuals on the local level uh, participating in this. Uh, it wasn't just federal troops, you know, doing all the work. Yeah. Um, and you see, you see conflict between where do the federal troops come into play, and where do where the citizens where are they expected to protect themselves. Exactly. Um, these lots of these union leagues became outlawed in the South. It became illegal, oftentimes, for African Americans to own and bear arms. If you were seen with that, you'd be arrested. Um, the governor um, of Mississippi, Albert Ames, wow. Um, <laughs> actually even asked Washington for assistance during the Grant administration. And uh, the Attorney General um, forwarded on the, the message to Grant. Sorry, Mitch didn't want to say the name because he messed up the other one. <laughs> Attorney General Pierpont. Okay. Anyway. Uh, Grant promised, the, prom promised uh, Governor Ames that, quote, as many of the troops now in Mississippi as Ames deems necessary may be sent to Jackson. Uh, so basically saying that you will get as many troops as you want. Uh, but this also came with, uh, it was, there's some hesitation to all this. The northern public was growing extremely weary uh, with, with using all these resources when, in law of their eyes, they were needed out west fighting the, the Native Americans and Plains Indians. Um, and Hahn even argues that it wasn't, quote, the continued use of federal troops per se that repelled most northern critics of Reconstruction. It was rather the use of federal troops to empower certain groups over others. Exactly, which is heavily, heavily ironic when you see that, that instead of being in the South, the North is one of them out West where, you know, they could kill Indians yeah. instead of black people. Yeah. Like, that's, it's so, like... The race, like racism is so much built into the structure of American history and how we built this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is just one example of that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, but it's also important to, to remember that, you know, this was, you know, unheard of for a president to send troops to quell like local unrest. Exactly. Yeah. And what a lot, and what a lot of people at the higher end of government saw as just that they didn't realize per se, you know, that this was not just happening in Jackson, Mississippi, to a few households. Mm -hmm. This was something that was happening to thousands and countless African Americans and white Republicans, too, across the South and even in the North sometimes. Um, so it, it's really difficult to, to, for them to see that um, when it was such an unprecedented move. Um, but it's hard, again, for, you know, how, how can African American men protect themselves if they're not allowed to bear arms, they're not allowed to form in these community organizations, um, how do they you know, establish themselves in their community and society if they're not allowed to, to gather in mass exactly. or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, and those laws are a huge reason why Jim Crow uh, was able to take effect mm -hmm. because of that, because there was explicit uh, discrimination uh, against the African American community, specifically African American men, a lot of times. Yeah. The, I mean, I mean, there was discrimination against African American women, but it was often in much different ways than it was for men too. Yeah. Which is like a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I mean, we can also talk about a little bit about um, political ways that African Americans already kind of had. Uh, trends and how they were already already familiar with 
political terms and yeah. things like that. Um, again, a lot of this stems from the African, uh, uh, the slaves' familiarity with religion and with the role of ministers and preachers as kind of leaders of not only their religious faith, but also their communities uh, in general. And after the war, after emancipation, a lot of these preachers and ministers kind of became political um, people as well. And the public of African Americans had already had familiar, familiarity with going to a, a designated spot, sitting down on benches, and listening to someone talk to them. So when it came time to uh, start you know, engaging in, in politics and voting uh, in a formal structure, it was not altogether unfamiliar for a lot yeah. of African Americans and, and a lot of slaves. Uh, as yeah, exactly. It wasn't like democracy was this new thing that was yeah. uh, foist, like foisted upon them, and they're like, "Oh, what is this?" Like, yeah, obviously not. <laughs> like the structures and like the because I mean, like yeah, the structures and like the concepts of democracy weren't new to anybody mm-hmm. at this time. That wasn't like I mean that was one of the rights they were fighting for was to be able to take part in the democracy that was already happening. Exactly. Like, it wasn't they weren't just like oh democracy like let's do that. There's like a very specific reasons why, you know, African-Americans wanted to take part in the political culture of the United States. Yeah. Um, these, these groups, uh, Hahn argues, didn't just emerge out of the blue, uh, but came from a long tradition of not just, you know, religious church groups and whatnot, uh, but just kinship, mm-hmm. uh, kins and, and families. And he kind of argues that on a plantation, it you know, it was all too oftentimes uh, your family would be separated, torn apart violently, dramatically, terribly. Um, and so you would become a, essentially a family with your fellow slaves. Um, and you would then, you know, become familiar with slaves on other plantations, and sometimes you're able to, to work, and then you'd find yourselves in these religious meetings with each other. Uh, but these these kinships really transition into these political and social groups. Um, it wasn't just uh, purely religious. It was just, it was everything. Exactly. And that wasn't even, that's not like a specific to post-slavery African Americans either. Uh, like if you go back to Victorian England, you also have social clubs that eventually started becoming uh, almost, uh, you know, like they became like voting blocks. Essentially, like it's a, it was social clubs and social groups have long, like a long history of being where votes were gotten, where candidates came out of, especially in the upper classes, uh, and so there is just another development of the tradition of social clubs uh, that their African Americans are latching onto within their own cultural uh, specificity. Specificity, I think is how yeah, that's, that's pronounced. That sounds good. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, there were. There were African Americans who, after um, emancipation, took on actual governing roles in exactly. in, uh, in the U.S. government on mm-hmm. local level and state yeah. level. Jim Crow didn't come around right away. There yeah. was a period where many African Americans were uh, able to become elected um, to spots in the government. Yeah. Um, and there are, I think it's in uh, Holland's book, there are depictions of... African American uh, congressmen who are—it's it's kind of—it's a, a caricature of them, and you can see it's—it's um, it's some governmental meeting, and these African Americans are are there. They aren't, but they're—they're they're not dressed well. They're dressed in tatters, while as compared to the um, 
the congressmen, the white congressmen who are just in fine clothes and whatnot. And the, the African Americans look bored and tired and sleepy and just crazy or drunk while they're supposed to be doing their duties to, the, to their constituents. Um, and so you see this kind of mass media coming in to uh, manipulate the public's uh, interpretation of, of African Americans in actual political uh, positions, even though they had success. You know, they, they functioned just as well as any white uh, governor or not uh, governor or, or congressman or anything like that. Um, the the media worked hard to portray them as out of their league, which yeah, just isn't true. As Han argues, they already had a long tradition of of working in these kinds of environments. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I can't find the picture either in the Han book, but I, there's other ones like here. You have two former state legislators leading uh, this, like, lodge, essentially, in Helena, Arkansas, um, of this, like, powerful uh, political group within the black community. These things, like, still existed uh, throughout the day, and including, like, public schools, um, starting up and maintaining their own public schools for, um, uh, so their children be, could have access to a better education than they did. Yeah. But, I mean, even, even these... Um People, these people in government were never safe. Oh, no. Um, there, there's an example of, of Margaret Caldwell uh, went uh, test, to testify in, in kind of the wake of the murder of her husband, who was a senator, Senator Caldwell. Um, the man was shot once, and then, uh, as Margaret says, her, his body was riddled with 30 to 40 bullets. And this is all taking place just a little ways away from their home. Um, and so he was apparently killed, as uh, Mrs. Caldwell testifies, that the men who did the killing said that they, quote, killed him for that, for obeying government, Governor Ames, end quote. Ames was the Mississippi governor who asked for federal aid and, and protection. Um, so this actually occurred after the senator had led a procession of black militiamen through the town of Clinton in a show of strength and encouragement to other African Americans. Uh, this is... You know, so this is important as it reveals kind of an understanding of symbolic military-like actions uh, t- being taking place, uh, being used by all sides at this time. Um, and so you can see traditions of militaristic culture filtered through organizations like the Klan and Union League. So just while you know, as he had been leading a group of African Americans to show solidarity and, and unity and and strength, yeah, and, 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 and black mili- like armed militiamen. Yeah, it's more than just solidarity. It's also like strength. Like yes, we have power. Absolutely. Um, and the reaction for that is getting yeah, killed murder. and murdered yeah. from your family. And as a senator, yes, a senator. If Joe Biden, I guess he's vice president now, but when he was senator, mm-hmm. was just shot in the middle of the street, leading like a veterans parade, which essentially is what this was, and was murdered for that, and the national outcry would be huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but. Because of the situation in the South, it wasn't at all. I mean, there was obviously a large outcry, but we don't talk about that now. Like, no one talks about Senator Caldwell's murder in history class. Yeah. Yeah, and you, and you can check out our, our clan episode for more information on how these kind of these social groups and fraternities grew into paramilitary organizations and exactly. paramilitary organizations in general, uh, if you want more on that. Um, let's see. Which is a great. I don't want. We don't want to just uh, you know, pump our own episodes every uh, every podcast. But we will do this one because you should check it out and listen to all of them. Yeah. 
I guess it'll be just to take a quick pause in our talk on agency. Um, I do want to mention another article that's not the Han book, um, just for another side of this, I guess, of when writing about agency in history. Um, there's a classic article uh, written at the same time about Han came out in 03, right? Yeah. Yeah, written at the same time Han's book came out um, in 03 uh, by Walter Johnson uh, called On Agency. This came out in the Journal of Social History. Uh, this is a great historiographical piece about writing uh, history and about writing agency. Uh, so Walter Johnson is talking about this idea of bringing agency to um, generally, like to minorities in history. So for a long time in the history of writing history, it was the idea of great white men history. Like the only people you talked about were you know the great men of history, like Roosevelt. Gandhi, uh, all these people. So it wasn't just great white men, but when you talked about non-white men, it was still men. Yeah. You know, so Napoleon, all these people. And then there eventually came a change in what Johnson calls a new social history, where it wasn't just writing about um, great men anymore. It was writing about uh, the unprivileged people who hadn't been written about history, who hadn't been written about before. Or if they had been written about, it was written about as a block, like the slaves, that kind of thing, or like women. And so historians started to do this thing called giving people agency, um, and which is what we're talking about, showing that individuals had a, a, the ability to change their future, even if they were under uh, systems of oppression like slavery, like slavery, or like you know women in pretty much any point in history. Yeah, it could be it could be political oppression or suppression exactly. or social suppression mm-hmm. uh, or just you know economic suppression, anything. Exactly. And so he writes about, he's writing about uh, this idea of agency. Uh, And his argument is that agency, while it was very, very good for the work of history, um, and this is like the densest article. (laughs) I had to read this once for a class, and I could barely make it through it, uh, and I pretty much had to like ask the professor what it meant. Um, But to quote him uh, in a somewhat readable passage, he writes, he's talking about agency, he says, It enabled historians to see and say things that were new and important. In doing so, these delineated an optical field, which, as powerful as it was, made it hard to see some other things, even things which were already known beyond the categories of the agency debates. So Walter Johnson is arguing that agency, at least in 2003, had entirely taken over the field of history. So even though it was a very, very important move in history, to show that individual slaves, naming individual women, naming individual slaves, that showing what their actions were, whether it was uh, a woman who would work less in the fields or, you know, swap out um, like a certain kind of meat so she could feed her own family a little more, that when you just focus on agency, you're not allowing yourself to see other things. Um, He writes a little later on, Um, If we are to acknowledge the claims of the past upon the present and to frame our scholarship as an act of redress, that is, that we're writing to correct the wrongs of history, it seems to me important that we do so in ways which engage the Um, exigencies, I don't know how to pronounce that word, Um, of the present, the globalization of racialized and feminized structures of exploitation, rates of black incarceration in the United States that are unprecedented in world history, the resurgence of slavery, plain and simple slavery, as a mode of production, and importantly, the emergence of new forms of global political solidarity and collective actions with terms other than those produced by an earlier struggle. 
So what he's very saying dense. here, very dense, obviously, <laughs> but still very important. Uh, just unpacking that a little bit. He's arguing that agency isn't really a term that makes much sense anymore mm-hmm. because we the new structures of exploitation that exist in modern day U.S. and that exists post like slavery period. You, using the word agency there doesn't mean anything. Be, like or it, yeah, it doesn't mean what it used to mean because. These structures are so empowered. You can't just write about individuals exercising agency because these structures that it, they can't, they have no power against are in place. So like he's arguing that you can't, if you're trying to write, trying to redress the wrongs, to quote him, of by doing history, you have to talk about it in a way that isn't just saying, you know, incarcerated like Thai slaves used agency by, you know, stealing an extra fish one day. You have to write about the way globalized, like, globalization of economy is making Thai slavery a thing again. You, like, agency is no longer a useful term when talking about uh, modern things anymore. And so that's something to keep in mind, mm-hmm. that you can also use these frameworks on the past. Slavery was a huge systematic thing in the United States, and while agency is important, you can't forget the system that was in place. You still have to write about the top-level systematic problems that were happening and were uh, making it so that slaves had to use quote-unquote agency to make any sort of impact on their lives. So in, in a sense, does, is that kind of like connecting, I mean, the, the highest uh, southern governors to the lowest slave? Is that kind of... Kind of. It's connecting them, but it's also writing about, it's not just a people thing. You have to write about the systems that are in place. Um, so it's not, a governor in and of itself is just a part of the system. Okay. They don't control the system either. They use the idea of agency just as much as, you know, a slave would. Uh, because these, like, long-term historical um, historical exigencies, whatever that, how you pronounce that word, are in place making them work within that system. Okay. So while it's good to write about agency and to show that individuals have agency, you can't forget the other things. It's okay. essentially what Walter Johnson is writing. Yeah. That, that almost reminds me of, um, uh, there's one historian that I, I read for uh, a class last fall who essentially said that um, the, the son king of France, I think it was Louis XIV, uh, who you know self-proclaimed son king, the emperor of everything, the absolute monarch, was nothing but a tiny bubble on the foam on top of the wave of the ocean of history. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, yeah. Is that there's yeah. you focusing on the agency of individuals important, but if you want to, he says, redress the wrongs of history, you can't do just that. Yeah. As he says uh, earlier on in the piece, if we are to draw credibility by doing our work in the name of the enslaved and then seek to discharge our debt to their history by simply, quote-unquote, giving them back their agency, uh, then I think we must, I'm skipping a little bit, then I think that we must admit we are practicing therapy rather than politics. We are using our work to make ourselves feel better and more righteous rather than to make the world better or more righteous. See. She says, to simply just give you know, someone back their agency isn't doing anything. They're dead. It they, they, doesn't matter if they were given back their agency. You're not correcting any wrongs in the future yeah, by see. doing history. Yeah. This is his argument. 
So keep that in mind when you're writing history. Absolutely. Simply just giving someone back their agency is a first step, but it is not the final step by any means. Yeah. And that's my soapbox <laughs> about how the world is all messed up. Nah. <laughs> the system. The system, man. DePaul just me my diploma, so I feel like I had to like do something about yeah. it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, but what does that diploma even mean? Just a piece it's of paper, just a man. Piece of paper, bro. It's just a bubble oh, on top of a wave. Oh, yeah. Um, so to kind of wrap it up, um, I'm gonna talk quote a guy named Thomas Watson, uh, who was writing about. Um, he wrote a, a something called, "quote, forgive my language, <laughs> the Negro Negro question of the South." He wrote it in 1892, and it, it almost sounds like something that Han might say. Uh, he made the comment that, quote, African Americans are interwoven with our business, political, and labor systems. They assimilate with our customs, our religion, our civilization. They are part of our system, and they are here to stay, end quote. So some parts of that you can kind of see as, as part of this, you know, African Americans were even some people at, you know, a century ago, over a century ago, during the advent and the beginning of Jim Crow, still saw, you know, acknowledged that African Americans were part of this ingrained uh, U.S. society. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just that they were, they interacted with the marketplace. They interacted with the government and politics and religion and culture and society at every single level. Even if, you know, on the surface they didn't have quote-unquote agency, yeah. or they weren't being given it at the time, um, which, I mean, they, they don't need to be given agency. They, they had, had it. it. Yeah. You know, they had all this stuff. Um, that goes against just everything <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about. I didn't mean to do that. No, you're, you're good. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the, the thing was that even this guy was a, was a populist, mm -hmm. and populists were beginning to turn the, the questions away um, that Americans were asking away from questions of race and civil war, and because uh, at this time Americans were still trying to bury their ghosts and hide skeletons in their closet and escape from the trauma of the civil war, uh, no matter who you were. So they started to turn to questions of economics, and that's what populists really focused on. And so Hahn argues that. Um, Quote, what African Americans did learn was that the populists, even the foremost advocates of biracialism, took every opportunity to decry social equality and unmistakably folk re refused them direct access to political power, end quote. So there is the, you know, even though African Americans, you know, were parts, were connected to this and affected by the social structure of the United States and you know, on paper, had all these political rights. Even the most, you know, biracial hero, the hero of biracialism, if you're a populist, still didn't want to see actual social equality given to these African Americans, no matter how integrated they were in it, in, in fact. Mm -hmm. Well, I think about does it. Uh, I'm Dylan. And I'm Mitch. And this has been the greatest podcast in history. The greatest. Hit the outro, baby. Oh, yeah.